Each year at about this time, we seem to consider Jesus' resurrection. Have you noticed that? <laughs> it's a bit of a habit we've gotten into. And uh, this year, I want to look at it from a perspective that predates the events, an anticipatory perspective, if you like, because Isaiah was one of the prophets who longed for a resurrection-shaped world. Even if he couldn't quite have described it in those terms, throughout his visions and his words, there are hints toward a kind, the kind of momentous shift that a resurrection world would mean for the ways God's people would do life. And this passage that James has just read for us this morning is a prime example of that. It talks about a new heavens and a new earth. Oh, okay. My assistant will just help me with the uh, childcare. New heavens and a new earth. And of course, uh, our culture thinks about things in very materialist terms. So when we hear the phrase new heavens and new earth, we often think about God creating the new material of a new planet uh, that we might live on kind of thing. Uh, but in ancient Near Eastern stories, I think I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, creation is much more about organising the stuff for its purpose, for its divine purpose. And so we see in the Genesis creation story that God is using the sea and the dry land and organising it in ways that will produce the outcomes that... Uh, he would like. It's like organising children so that they will be in the places you want them to be. <laughs> and Isaiah's reference to the heavens and the earth is kind of like saying everything is going to be organised differently because there's nothing outside of heaven and earth, is there? That pretty much covers everything. If it's heaven and earth, there is nothing beyond that. And Isaiah is talking about everything being in a new way together. Did any of you ever have a Sony Walkman? One of those little boxes that had a magnetic tape in it and uh, you'd, make, you'd get your LP perhaps and record your, your favourite songs onto a cassette tape and you'd stick it in your Sony Walkman. Some people even strapped them to their arms or had them on their belts and they'd walk around with their chunky headphones in and away you go. Uh, we don't use those much anymore, do we? Uh, then the Discman came. Remember the Discman? You put a CD in it and if you ran too hard, it would jump around a bit. <laughs> and then the MP3 player was invented. And uh, we had these little cute things that had loads of files that we could listen to. And now we don't even have those because it's on our mobile phone. Our mobile phone is essentially a multimedia thing. Now, do we hark back to the good old days of the Walkman? Anybody missing that technology? <laughs> oh, thanks, Lil. Uh, it was before you were born, that's why. <laughs> See, when Isaiah says you're not going to want to recall those former things. You won't remember them anymore. He's talking about something that is going to be so much better that it will effectively eclipse what we currently know. That's how much better it will be. 
So what is the, the current social the current social organizing technology that human beings function with, as it were? How do we organize life? What is it that we're not going to remember or call to mind anymore when the new heavens and the new earth come? And this is where it's very subtle and difficult for us because these are things that we uh, neither find easy to look at or are very comfortable looking at, I think, because the current central social organizing technology for human humanity is basically fear. This is the way we organize our life, whether it is the fear of rejection by the main group or more subtly in our culture, the fear of missing out. As a species, we are so driven by these fears that we mostly uh, barely realize or acknowledge the ways we engage in self-destructive behavior in pursuit of avoiding these fears. Like when we choose to censor ourselves and uh, not be ourselves and kind of die inside rather than be authentic and risk the group rejecting us. That's an expression of that fear. Or maybe it's when uh, we are working ourselves to distraction or even close to death in pursuit of a dream, and it's a dream that we don't even know who gave us that dream. We just have to pursue it and work harder and go after it. And even more subtle than that, perhaps, is when we simply give up hope altogether that things will ever be any better because we can't deal with the fear of disappointment and things just not working out the way we might hope. Those are things that drive and organise human cultures. It's really subtle, but if you think about it, whether it's, well, we'll talk a bit more about that in a moment, but the new way of organising everything the new heavens and the new earth is going to be so much better than that. It's going to be organised around, not fear, but rejoicing and gladness. Does that sound better? Better than fear? Yep. Go with rejoicing and gladness. People will no longer be motivated by the fear of being excluded because the reality of grace will have done away with that fear. There will be no risk of missing out or being rejected. Grace will have become the central organising dynamic. Now, if you think about different cultures, you might think, for example, about uh, communist cultures where there's a fear of being expelled by the party, which is a, an expression of being expelled by the community. Uh, this keeps the population in line. It organises people. In capitalism, it's more subtle. We're motivated by the fear of missing out and you don't have to do anything, but if you don't, you won't have the resources to get the things that everybody wants. And so the system now manufactures new wants because we have to keep having new things to want in order to keep people doing the things that keep us going. Have you noticed that? You never knew you needed a mobile phone until they turned up, did you? never knew you needed an iPad or needed a whatever it is in your house at the moment until someone invented it and told you how much you needed it. And so you had to keep working to get one of those as well. And then your neighbours got one, so they must be good, so you just keep going. Can you imagine for a moment 
a society where people were so confident that they were already loved and accepted and that while we need to participate to make things work, we could be confident in, in always having the things that we need. And that the central organising principle was gladness and joy, not fear. People are not motivated in this scenario by fear. Rather, their decision would be about how much gladness and joy do I want to participate in? How much do I want to enter into life? How much do I want to give myself to this rich fullness of life? That's what Isaiah is dreaming about. And he says there'll be no more dismay or fear of sudden ruin or calamity and there'll be no more fruitlessness. People are going to live on forever. It was a time when there were raiders coming into Israel and Israel would build their vineyards and their houses and then they'd be invaded and kicked off their land and other people would actually live in their houses and eat the fruit of their vineyards. And Isaiah is saying that time will be past. There'll be no more fruitlessness for you, no more sudden calamity or dismay. There would, there would be no need to uh, try and hold your little world together in the way that we as a, a culture try to do that. You, have you noticed that uh, as we've had more and more stuff available to us, we cocoon ourselves more? We, uh, there was once, ages ago, people would talk about uh, waking up in the morning and going from their house through an internal door into their garage, into their air-conditioned car and drive to their office car park and get out and go into their air-conditioned office and finish their day's work and get back in their car and drive back into their garage and the door would come down and they'd go into the door. And there's this kind of hermetically sealed life. And we can do it emotionally as well and socially. We can keep with just the friends that we have pre-vetted to understand they think similarly to us or they like the same things or they're one of those voters or whatever it might be. And we can cocoon ourselves and create a world that isn't the whole world, it's our world. And it's the world that we feel safe in. And there's other stuff going out on out there. When I used to live on the northern beaches, this was the other world. That place in the city, oh, people are pretty wild in there and all sorts of things go on and ooh, I don't know. <laughs> we do, we create our own little worlds. Everyone does it because we can't manage the whole world in a sense. And so we create smaller worlds. But that leads to dismay because our small worlds always get invaded by the bigger world. And we suddenly become aware that we haven't been accounting for all the reality that there is out there and it comes crashing in on us. And that is a definition of dismay. How would it be if we had the security and the courage to more fully encounter the whole big wide world as it truly is? To engage the wonder and the horror of who we really are and the world in which we live. There would no longer be dismay or sudden ruin because the hard realities would not come as a surprise to us. They would still come but they wouldn't come sudden and unexpectedly. We would see them coming and we would not be fruitless because we would have the clarity to see what actually bears fruit and the honesty to learn from the things we do that don't bear fruit. 
rather than what is so often the case where we just keep doing the same thing because we're familiar with it and that's all we know how to do. Central to this vision is that God would be with us. Before we have needs expressed in our mouths, God would be responding to us. This is not some kind of just the presence of God esoterically in the ether, um, you know, doing nothing in particular, but this is a responsive, attentive, active, engaged, interventionist kind of God. And uh, see, we can only see so much as we go through life, and all our seeing is conditioned by um, the way we just have been brought up and all that kind of stuff. And accordingly, we assess good and evil according to what we think gets us where we want to go, and it's very understandable that we have a limited point of view. But God has a much bigger point of view and responds to our heart cries in ways that sometimes take us a long time to see what the good is in that. You you often hear people say, at the time I didn't know what was going on, but now, you know, 15, 20 years later, as I reflect on my life, I'm so thankful for X or Y or whatever happened. When we first brought our first child home from Taiwan, Wei, she's sitting up the back there, talking about you but not really about you. We really had no clue how to parent. I mean, we had the basic ideas. We could prepare food and mush it up. We knew how to change nappies and uh, we knew how to put a child into a bed. Okay, so they're the main three things. Feed, change, sleep. But knowing when to do any one of these things is really the knowing bit. And... The real knowing is kind of listening to your child in a way that anticipates what they're going to need. And as you live with them and understand them more, you start to know, ah, they're going to get tired shortly, I'll get them some food ready because they'll be hungry and then they'll go to bed. And when they make certain movements and noise, you know, I think they're uncomfortable, nappy change might be required at this moment, that kind of thing. We listen to them even before they have words to express their need. We respond. And that's the kind of care at a certain level we all need always through our life and that's the promise of God. A listening to us that understands us more deeply than we can understand ourselves and before we can even articulate what the thing is, God is responding. And there's a beautiful vision at the end of the lion lying down with the lamb and no violence being done in all my holy mountain. And that is a very unrealistic view, is it not? Is not nature red in tooth and claw? How, how could this possibly happen, the, the lion eating straw with the ox? No. But Isaiah is straining to say something that we can barely imagine. That life wouldn't take place in a predatory environment where it wouldn't be kill or be killed, which, let's be honest, even socially when we're polite and wear our suits and go to businesses and stuff like that, it's still kill or be killed 
so much of the time. Imagine where that was no longer the driving principle. And the good capitalists amongst us would go, well, we'd all fall over because we wouldn't achieve anything. But imagine we just desired to achieve, to achieve because we wanted to make the most valuable contribution to the society that we could possibly make, not to get a reward, but because therein was the richest thing we could do. And people were jealous to do that because it would bless people and they could celebrate in the giving of themselves in that wonderful way. When we trust that we are being cared for, we no longer need to compete with one another. This world is not a kill or be killed world. It is a trust you are loved world and that loving is where life is to be found. It is the resurrection world, I put it to you. It's a world where things have been so transformed that the thing we fear the most is no longer there to be feared it's still there, but not to be feared. We go through it and it is transformed and there's a new hope that comes in. It is the world of shalom, a peace that is not just a cessation of hostilities, but a peace that is the contributing of each person to what the other needs, to the benefit and enrichment of all that exponentially increases good, goodwill and well-being for everybody. As you get to the final book of the Bible, the Revelation of St John, and get to the final chapter of that book, you will read these words and they echo, I think, the kind of sentiment that we have here. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of the street, and on either side... The river of, on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. There'd never be a lack of fruit. And, there, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in the, and the throne of God is there and the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will no longer need the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. As we gather on this Resurrection Sunday, the thing is, if Jesus didn't rise, this hope is false. It is nothing. We live in a dog-eat-dog -dog world, and we might as well just get as much as we can and stuff everybody else. But Jesus has risen. He has come again through death into life and recast the meaning of everything and shaped where life is truly to be found. This hope is stronger even than death. That is to say, it's not a hope that pretends death is not real. It is a hope that goes into death and through and beyond and out the other side of death. This is our hope. And I put it to you, it's the only hope 
that will save our world. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the prescient vision of Isaiah. We thank you that he could see a day that was so transformed by your resurrection that it would change the meaning of everything, the way we do everything, the organising principle of every community. And we want to give ourselves to you in that now. We want to live that resurrection life that we might not miss out but enter fully in and give ourselves to you, to the glory of your name. Amen.